when they were students, most faculty members were not the average student. They generally enjoyed learning and were willing to spend long hours independently studying topics that others may not care much about. In this episode, we examine how geeks and nerds can successfully teach our more normal students. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Jessamine Newhouse. Jessamine is a professor in the history department at SUNY Plattsburgh. She specializes in the study of pop culture, gender studies, and teaching and learning. Jessamine is the recipient of the State University of New York's Chancellor's Award for Teaching Excellence. She is also the author of Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers, which is scheduled for release in September 2019. Welcome, Jessamine. Thank you. Nice to be here. Welcome. Our teas today are... I'm drinking lemon zinger in my book nerd mug. <laughs> it sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have You'll have to bring that to book signings, too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm drinking Rose Garden today. I'm drinking Twining's Enchanted Forest Fruits Black Tea, which I picked up in Epcot last yeah, year. My Rose Garden's from there, too. I was there for the OLC conference, and you were there, actually, for a vacation. Yep. Enchanted Garden <laughs> is, sounds super nerdy. It is. And it tastes very good, too. (laughs) We've invited you here to talk about your new book. What inspired you to write this? For as long as I can remember, I've loved to read and write and think. I've always been an introvert. I need a lot of solitude in order to function. I've always done well academically. My son, on the other hand, he's an off the charts extrovert and an (laughs) different student, let's call it that, indifferent. Watching him grow up and go through the education system made me realize how differently he and I experienced school. And like I say in the acknowledgments section of my book, living with him and with his father, my significant other, is a master class in the difference between nerds and normals. They're the normals, (laughs) I'm a nerd. (laughs) This was a big part of the inspiration for the book. Nobody was saying what I think is pretty self-evident, that people who earn advanced degrees by and large are pretty nerdy, which is as it should be. We're the experts. Introverts are also disproportionately represented in academia. We take pretty easily to those long hours of isolated study that's required to earn an advanced degree. Another inspiration was I really wanted to inspire teaching self-efficacy and helping faculty become effective teachers. And I use that word really, really deliberately. I understand why SOTL folks and professional developers use terms like best teachers, excellent teachers, even good teachers. But I think those terms really feed into some disempowering myths about teaching, myths like Good teachers are born, not made, or myths like only the most astounding super teachers 
affect student learning. And those highly idealized impossible standards, I think, can really undermine teaching self-efficacy, feed into doubts and insecurities. So that was another inspiration. And similarly, throughout the book, I use us and we when I'm talking about teaching, trying to create a sense of shared undertaking like we do in our classes when we talk about our class, our learning, our discussion, trying to help students become aware of their own responsibilities for their learning. And similarly, a lot of SOTL authors who I know want to invite readers to join the teaching commons inadvertently undermine this goal by handing down these rigid dictates from above. You should do this. Don't forget to do that. You do this, that. As if the person writing is not also in the teaching trenches trying to learn and relearn how to be an effective teacher. And I guess along with that, I also really wanted to bridge the major gulf between SOTL converts and faculty who are new to or even resistant to professional development. I see so much conversation about college teaching that is really divided along these two extreme positions. On one side, pro-student, SOTL experts, they're practically perfect. They never get frustrated by students. (laughs) They're 100% compassionate and they're totally on board with professional development. And on the other extreme, faculty who are totally burned out or completely cynical, and they're always sniping at each other. Like, you should be more compassionate to students. No, students are always terrible. And (laughs) I want something in the middle saying, we can learn how to be effective teachers. We can be compassionate. We can be understanding. But also, sometimes students are irritating. It's frustrating. And I think finally, the most important inspiration for me was I saw a need for a teaching book that strongly and repeatedly acknowledges the importance of our individual teaching context. And what works for one instructor just plain might not work for another. I mean, even what worked for you in one class may not work in another class. And this isn't like a brand new concept. It's widely acknowledged, but I don't think it's acknowledged consistently enough. I think especially for new instructors. I think you can read a lot of SOTL that seems to be suggesting if you just do this, you'll be an effective teacher. And that's not nuanced enough. I know that I was really excited to hear about your book because it includes words like introvert and geeky in the title. (laughs) (laughs) And I identify that way. Mm -hmm. And I know that the first chapter in your book is on identity. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important to think about identity and why that's not often included in professional development. Sure. I'm so glad you asked that question. And the short answer to why I included it is because embodied identity is an important reality in human interactions. (laughs) And I'm not sure why it's not more fully acknowledged in professional development. It does seem like a lot of advice about teaching And scholarship on teaching and learning seems to imagine that we're teaching in some sort of enchanted bubble that's floating above the dreary workaday world of this wondrous place of true equality. There's no racism or sexism and students and teachers are purely intellectual beings and we gather totally free of our biases just to learn together every morning. 
the sky is full <laughs> of rainbows and we skip down lollipop lane to another glorious day of tenure. But right after we walk by the unicorns, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But when we enter the classroom, we don't close the door and presto changeo. There's no race and ethnicity and gender expression and speaking voice and physical ability, sexual identity. They don't exist. We bring all those assumptions and stereotypes and biases and unconscious biases with us. But a lot of otherwise excellent scholarship on teaching and learning just does not fully acknowledge this. There's a widespread assumption about what a professor looks like. And it's a white guy, probably wearing a tweed jacket with elbow patches. And he's lecturing so brilliantly in front of these mesmerized students that they learn without effort. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting that white guys don't have to work hard to be effective teachers. They do. And I'm also not suggesting anyone who's not a white guy can't teach effectively. Of course, that's not true. But any teaching advice is not going to apply in exactly the same way in every classroom. And embodied identity is one. It's only one, but it is one important aspect of our individual and unique teaching context. So just to give an example, it's pretty clear from the scholarship that effective teachers build rapport and demonstrate immediacy with students. But what I have to do to achieve that as a white gender normative woman is different than what my white gender normative male colleague would have to do. And it's different from what all faculty of color have to do, especially because their expertise is not assumed in the same way or be challenged in a different way than many white faculty members. To take an even more specific example, I've seen teaching advice that talks about how professors need to be friendly and approachable and that that would include smiling to students. But you know that saying you should smile more means something different to women than it does to men, and we will hear it differently. It doesn't mean we shouldn't smile with students, but it means we have to utilize that scholarship in a different way. I think every aspect of our world, white male privilege is often the default center of SOTAL. And I would add maybe tenured to this kind of default privileging. And I think we just have to start more regularly acknowledging that effective teaching and learning is shaped by embodied identity, just like everything else we do as human beings. And one last point on this, it was very, very important to me that I not reinforce gendered and racialized stereotypes about geeks and nerds. Historically, those terms have been gendered male and raced as white. That's changing, and you can see it in some contemporary popular representations. You can see it in people's lived experiences. Those stereotypes aren't gone. They still have an impact on people's lives. And in fact, geek gatekeeping, where white male geeks say, you can't play this, you can't do that, is still a factor, especially in fan cultures and gaming communities is still a problem. But there's so many of us nerds and geeks who fully embrace and celebrate Spock's view of the universe (laughs) as a place of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. You also, in that first chapter, include a section called Learning is Hard. And that's probably a useful thing for faculty to remember because many of us have either found it to be easy along the way or it was so long ago that we were at that position (laughs) that we've forgotten how difficult it is to learn new things. Could you address that just a little bit? That section draws on all the great science out there about the brain and learning 
And you're absolutely right. It's especially important for us nerdy experts because we know our topics so well. Our brains are so skilled and practiced at it. That's the expert blind spot that gets in our way. It's something that we do so automatically. It's hard to remember what it's like for a new learner. It's hard to remember how long it takes to learn. It's hard to remember how emotional learning can be, especially when, like I was saying with my son, we've had really different academic experiences than most people. Even our most brilliant students at our most elite institutions most of them don't take to academia the way we did. Most people want to be done with school. We said, no, I like school so much, I'm going to stay in school forever. <laughs> <laughs> so the science of learning is an important way for us to keep reminding ourselves that learning is hard and we have to do it over and over. And that does apply to us too. One of my main points in this book is that learning how to be an effective teacher never stops. We are always learning and relearning because students change, we change, curriculum changes. We're always having to relearn. And yet faculty will often throw up their hands the first obstacle they get to and say, I'm not a good teacher. I mean, I've lectured my students, I don't know how many times on, you got to have a growth mindset. Don't tell yourself you're bad at something. But then when I was trying to teach myself how to do Twitter, after two weeks, I was like, oh, I'm terrible at this. Everybody else is so good. I just can't do it. It's really hard to learn. And it's easy to forget in our subjects because we're so skilled at them. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by geeky pedagogy in general? Sure. So this is the first college teaching guide addressed to geeks, introverts, and nerds, which is pretty amazing because damn, like look around you, pal. I mean, <laughs> academia is jam-packed with us, but it's more than a gimmick. So at the heart of my argument is that geeks, introverts, and nerds as a group, and I'm generalizing, this isn't every single person, but as a group, we face certain obstacles to effective teaching and learning. Obstacles like effective communication, building rapport, productive professional and social interaction. We're highly successful academically. And most of us who have not taught much before somehow believe that that's going to magically translate into helping other people be successful academically, but it doesn't. It's not necessarily. That being said, though, Geeks, introverts, and nerds as a group bring important and necessary skills to learning and relearning how to teach effectively. We're passionate about our subjects, and we can draw on that passion to create what I call a geek culture of sharing pedagogy. So that is creating classrooms and instruction that invites everyone into the study of whatever crazy, arcane, esoteric topic we love with all our dorky hearts, instead of acting as a geek gatekeeper, keep people out, prove how smart we are. Geek culture of sharing says, come in, this cool thing we are learning about, I can't wait to share with you. You have a chapter in your book on preparing for class. Could you tell us some of the things you focus on in there? Okay, so my first recommendation for preparation is you're going to read Geeky Pedagogy from cover to cover. <laughs> you're going to follow me on Twitter at Geeky Pedagogy. You're going to visit my website, geekypedagogy.com, going live July 1st. But seriously, the first thing I would emphasize, my top recommendation for preparation, the thing I most want to share with my tribe of nerdy eggheads 
is to think about teaching effectively as an intellectual activity. We have to use our big fat brains for effective teaching. All those geeky study skills we have, we have to apply it to teaching preparation. So we have to do some research on pedagogical content knowledge, how to teach your subject. We have to think carefully about our syllabi and prepare them in a timely way. Do not procrastinate. That's my one nag. (laughs) Don't procrastinate. We have to think through our experts' blind spots. We have to read up on the science of the brain, how people learn. And we have to take into account that over and over again in our individual and unique teaching context, we're going to be learning and relearning about effective teaching. Now, in the book, it's a narrative guide, so I don't offer extensive checklists or step-by-step, do this, do that, and then, ta-da, you're an effective teacher. Those can be helpful at times, I think maybe especially if it's your very first class and you're really, really nervous. But I want faculty drawing on a lot of this maybe specific advice I have in the book, but I want faculty to feel empowered to research their own specific teaching context to become what Stephen Brookfield called experts on our own teaching, to keep figuring out what worked, what didn't work, reflect on it, repeat. One of the things you mentioned is preparing for confrontation and conflict. What advice do you give faculty or what types of confrontations and conflicts do you address there? We were just talking about the emotional aspects of teaching and learning. Teaching and learning include a lot of extreme emotions. I'm not the first. Stephen Brookfield, Mary Ellen Weimer both mention that teaching is a roller coaster. There's a lot of ups and downs. Same is true for learning. There's a lot of ups and downs. For different kinds of assessment and grading, there can be conflict. Student incivility, which is a very polite term for things that sometimes are pretty egregious, it can happen. And this is all a tiny part of teaching, but it happens and it sucks up a disproportionate amount of our time and energy. Another example might be plagiarism. One issue I talk about is academic entitlement, a new and growing issue. The most important thing, and this is across all teaching contexts, even taking into account what Roxanne Harlow called disparate teaching realities. So even taking those into account, preparation is the one thing that can help mitigate any kind of conflict, clearly conveying and communicating, not easy for introverts and nerds, but clearly conveying your expectations, being as transparent as possible. That's the number one thing preparing for those. And then the other thing, I guess in that section, the most important point is that understanding as introverts, and not every introvert and nerd is socially awkward. I am. I'm definitely a socially awkward smarty pants. That's my persona. (laughs) (laughs) Understanding that for me, high levels of emotion are hard to handle. And it's definitely not easy for anybody in any workplace to deal with conflict and anger and strong emotion. But I think it can be especially daunting for introverts, for people who aren't extra socially skilled. It's hard to be right there in the face of extreme student emotion, preparing for it with some scripts in your mind not like endlessly rehearsing, I'm going to say this to so-and-so, but just having a kind of standard for plagiarism. This is kind of my standard script for someone upset about their grade. This is some steps I do. Being 
as mindful and as present as possible in that moment tends to help as well, which is actually a strength for introverts is listening. So the research seems to be suggesting that the best way to diffuse any kind of student conflict is for students to feel like they've been listened to and that that seems to matter more than what you actually do to resolve the situation. So there was one study that showed, for example, students might view the offer to do makeup work for something as either a positive or a negative resolution, totally depending on if they felt like the professor had been listening to their concerns. That's great news for introverts and nerds because it has everything to do with our communication skills, which we can do. You mentioned reflective practice a little bit ago. Can you talk a little bit about some techniques or ways that we can build that into our practice and then actually use the time that we reflect (laughs) effectively? Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned those are two very different things. And neither one of them is easy, but the second one is definitely harder. So applying the knowledge you've gained from reflection to your actual classroom practice is a lot harder. The number one thing to do and not do is don't limit your pedagogical reflection to student evaluations. Too often, that's the only feedback and only reflection faculty do about their teaching, and it's insufficient. It can tell us some important things, but it's not adequate on its own. I have some specific suggestions in the book, things as simple as keeping ongoing notes throughout the term on your syllabus about things that are working or not working well. But I would say generally, I really want to encourage people to find reflective practices that engage you as part of your intellectual work of teaching and make sense for you. I was really aware that for some of us, mindfulness practices, yoga, we're on board. And then for some of us, even anything slightly new agey is not going to work at all. So my main recommendation is find reflective practices that help you reflect on what's working, what's not working, and then apply to your practice. An important part of that is thinking about reflection as something we do as individuals, but also part of a community of practice. We have to talk to other people about teaching. And sorry, introverts, you can't do it just on your own. Academia doesn't encourage it at all. You're often going against the grain to try to talk about teaching, especially if you want to talk about our teaching mistakes, which are the most important way we learn, just like our students. It's the most important way we learn, but there's so few opportunities. We have to really go out of our way to make those opportunities happen. And the one last plug I put in is for adding a gratitude practice to pedagogical reflection. And here I'm drawing on Carrie Howell's book. It's called Gratitude and Education, a Radical View. I want to emphasize this is not just positive thinking. It doesn't mean ignoring the toxic aspects of your workplace. Not that academia has any toxic aspects whatsoever, right? (laughs) Or injustice or inequality or anything going wrong. That's not what gratitude practice means. It does mean being fully aware of and paying attention to every aspect of your teaching context. And Howells argues that our teaching context in her gift paradigm of education, as opposed to consumerization model, In the gift paradigm, our teaching context always includes gifts, things we get, no strings attached from students, from colleagues and staff. 
I know people listening might be thinking, gifts, give me a break. Like I get jack squat every day from my frustrating students. But I would counter with, pardon me, while I super nerd out, the wise words of Thorne Oakenshield from The Hobbit. He said, there is nothing like looking if you want to find something. You certainly usually find something if you look, but it is not always quite the something you were after. So gratitude practice by opening up our view of our teaching context, we will find a gift. Early in the book, you start off with learning is hard. And at the end, you conclude with teaching is hard. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the last chapter is the shortest one. It's called practice. It's the best news and the worst news you're ever going to hear about teaching is that you can get better with practice. So that's great news because it means we're always learning how to do it better. It's bad news because nothing can replace it. Fellow bookworms, there's nothing you can read (laughs) that will replace it. And if you don't have employment security, like most of us teaching college, the majority of us teaching college are doing so on a contingent basis. If you don't have employment security, that's hard news. And it's a vicious irony that teaching effectively is so key to our employment. And yet the thing that will help us the most, being able to do it over and over, is dependent on our employment status. That very last section in chapter five is just an acknowledgement that when you're working hard to be an effective teacher, it's tiring. It can be daunting. There's some real highs and lows and to guard against burnout, to be aware of what you can and can't do. And to really, I circle back and say again, fight that super teacher myth. Get that damn Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society, Captain My Captain, get out of my head. Get out of my student's head. That's not how teaching goes. Every once in a while, you have a magical moment, but there's a lot of grinding hard work. Most of us become effective teachers the same way our students learn how to do something which is just slogging away at it day after ever loving day. That's how you get better. That's how you become effective. And it's hard. Earlier, you talked about inviting students into our geeky spaces. Can you talk a little bit about how you invite students into your geeky spaces? Well, I'll never forget the time I described this in chapter five. I just stumbled on it. I made a joke in passing about my own geekiness about an article we were reading. And I got this big student laugh. So student laughs, always good. (laughs) But later, reflecting on it, I realized what made that so pedagogically effective. First, there's a lot of debate and discussion about what exactly a nerd is, what exactly a geek is. But the one thing we all agree on is they're super smart. So when I said, I'm a big nerd to my students, it was joking. And yet it was also reinforcing my expertise and my knowledge. I know a lot about this. I am a big nerd. (laughs) It also, I think one thing I talk about in the book is the importance of enthusiasm. And that's a difficult term for someone like me who's pretty reserved in many ways, an introvert. I'm not going to be a cheerleader. I'm not extra warm and fuzzy. I'm pretty intellectual, but I am passionate. And I love the things I'm teaching. And when I position myself as the big geek in the room who can't get enough of this topic, 
it helps me convey that enthusiasm to students. One of the studies that I cite in the book says a massive survey of students who said they perceived a teacher as authentic when the teacher was happy that class begins. That's a tough one for introverts because part of me is always going to be back alone in my office doing my research or my scholarship, whatever gets me going as a scholar. But by embracing my nerdy love for my subject, I'm able to convey to students I am happy when class begins. Before we started recording, you were talking about zombies in your class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about some of the things you like to nerd out on? Sure. <laughs> or about that class in yeah. general. I would say, let's see, I'm going to put it in the teaching context. So the thing that I most love about teaching my subjects is getting students to rethink something they thought they knew about popular culture. And everybody arrives in my classes knowing a lot about popular culture in many ways. They know how to watch a movie. They know how to play a video game. And so getting them to rethink those things is what is most rewarding to me as a teacher. I sort of joke about it, but sometimes, you know, when students will say, Professor Newhouse, you ruined such and such for me, like some movie or some TV show. Like now I can't stop thinking about it. That's so rewarding for me <laughs> as a professor. Being able to have students apply some pretty abstract cultural studies work to their real lives, that's what makes me happiest as a professor. Every once in a while, a student will say, that documentary we saw, it was so interesting. I forced my roommate to watch it, or we looked it up online. I wanted my dad to see it. That's like a microphone drop for a professor. I figure if they're talking about it for no reason except they were interested outside of class, then I've definitely done my job. For me personally, nerding out, a big chunk of my scholarship has been on the history of gender and prescriptive gender norms, prescriptive literature. So my first book was about cookbooks and gender. My second book was about advertising and housework. And I've written articles about sex manuals, classroom films, instructional films, high school instructional films. And I could talk about those things for hours and hours. Well, now be geeky pedagogy as well, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what strategies do you recommend for faculty trying to improve their teaching? And where can they find assistance? You got to nerd out about teaching and learning. We already know how to nerd out about our topics. Ask anyone teaching a college class, tell me about the subject and watch their little faces light up, hear their voice get animated, no matter how arcane or obscure. Donald Glover said, strange, specific stuff. That's what makes a nerd a nerd. And that's what makes academics <laughs> academics. And I'll just use as an example, my good friend and colleague, he's a historian of industrialization, Jeff Hornibrook at SUNY Plattsburgh. He spent almost 20 years studying a single coal mine in China, a hole, a hole in the ground. But as he explains in his book, A Great Undertaking, this hole can tell you so many interesting things. That's an academic nerd for you. We can apply that same focus and ability to studying teaching and learning. And just like we're always learning about our topic, we're always going to keep learning about teaching. So resources for that, definitely 
total scholarship on teaching and learning, keeping in mind anything you read, you have to apply in your specific, unique, individual context. I also think probably the most immediately effective resource is your campus teaching and learning center. I've yet to speak to a single person who's ever had anything negative to say about their experiences at a teaching and learning center. If you have access to one, if there's one on your campus, it's the very first step you should do for any kind of support and for resources. I've also learned a ton about teaching from teaching conferences, which I think are a totally different world than academic conferences. Academic conferences, you're supposedly there to share knowledge, but really it's about proving you're smarter than other smart people, in my humble opinion. Teaching conferences, I really do see people trying to share knowledge. And like in the book, I say it, it's like the mothership come home. You're surrounded by other nerdy people who want to learn about teaching. And I'm also going to say academic Twitter. I'm going to say that. I only joined Twitter very recently. Thanks, marketing team, West Virginia University Press. They really said <laughs> you should think about doing this. And I did, hoping to get the word out about my book. But just very surprisingly, I found that it has significantly expanded my pedagogical community of practice. Of course, it has significant limitations, 280 characters. That doesn't leave a lot of room for citations, as a citation nerd like me. But it does provide a key component of reflection and improvement for teaching practice, which is talking to other people about teaching. And especially for me as an introvert, I've always been terrible at networking. And I teach at a very small, very rural and isolated university. And Twitter has really expanded my ability to hear what other people are doing in the classroom. And also, it really does, in many ways, work to decenter privilege in discussions about teaching and learning. It really is a platform for voices from across different employment status, teaching contexts, identity, and so on. One of the barriers I think that a lot of people have with academic Twitter is when they first sign up for it, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to offer much benefit until they start following enough people. Yeah. So it takes time to develop that personal learning network there to make it more useful. And it's worth taking the time to do that, but it doesn't have that immediate feedback that many other types of social networks perhaps may. But you can take your time to compose your interactions and not be caught on the spot. So in that way, it's really wonderful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. It's kind of a boon for introverts. <laughs> what are some ways that your book differs from other books on teaching and learning? Well, it's fun to read. <laughs> that already sets it apart. <laughs> I would call it Sotal with a side of snark. So in other words, it's real scholarship. I mean, it's so packed with citations. I had to cut out a bunch and I'm going to have to make that available as supplemental bibliographies online. So it's real research. There's all kinds of scholarly resources in there. But I'm allergic to jargon and pomposity. And I really like to make people laugh. So the book is highly readable. It's multidisciplinary. I'm a multidisciplinary scholar, so it was easy for me to move beyond the rigid dictates of studying history. That's my discipline. And it takes into mind the real variety of faculty who are looking to become effective teachers with all kinds of different individual teaching contexts, employment status, embodied identity. It's highly readable in a narrative style, and it's written by someone who doesn't take herself 
unduly seriously and someone who can acknowledge the roller coaster of teaching and learning. I'm really looking forward to checking it out when it comes out in September, right? Yes, September 1st. And we will include links to everything we've referred to here in the show notes. Great. Thank you. We always end our podcast with a question. What are you doing next? I guess you mean after I'm done with my worldwide speaking tour. Right. Clearly. When pedagogy yeah. becomes an international bestseller. So it'll be years from now. Yeah, yeah, years from now. After I convince all intellectuals everywhere to nerd out about teaching and learning. What I'd like to next focus on is decentering privilege in SODAL. I'm not sure what form this will take yet. I'm considering maybe like an edited collection. I'm thinking specifically of practical pedagogical strategies for underrepresented and marginalized faculty. There are a lot of excellent books and articles, anthologies, scholarship, and reflection about disparate teaching realities. That's Roxanne Harlow's term. But what's needed now, I think, is building on that for some practical suggestions and guidance for increasing pedagogical content knowledge when you don't look like a professor. I'll look forward to seeing what form that takes. That's really interesting. <laughs> I'll be back to talk about it on Tea for Teaching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. We're both very much looking forward to your book. And Thank you. Yeah hearing more about it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we appreciate the time you spent with us today. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Chris Wallace, Kelly Knight, Joseph Andrew, Jacob Alveson, Brittany Jones, and Gabriella Perez. Music